Good morning, church. I love that perspective being out there. I might have to do it more often. I told myself I wasn't going to sing, rest my voice, but here I am shouting it out down here. So that's great, great worship. I'm honored to bring the Word of God before us this morning. We're going to be in the book of Colossians if you want to go ahead and make your way there. If you're in a Bible fellowship class here and you use the Explore the Bible material, you started in a new session on Colossians last week. And that new session began in chapter 1, verse 9. And we're going to go back this morning to verses right before that in chapter 1. So I think it's going to tie together really nice to what you will study in the next four chapters in your Bible fellowship classes. So this morning we're going to focus on Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, with a message entitled, Sincere Christianity. Now, sincerity is a quality that everyone wants to be able to express. It's also a quality that we want expressed to us. Now, you can tell from a mile away if somebody isn't being sincere. You know, we want people to be honest with us. We want people to tell us the truth. And being sincere and being genuine does go a long way. Yeah, I've heard people say, well, at least they're sincere. That's the uh, equivalent of, well, bless their heart. (laughs) They're meaning they're being sincere. And that does mean a lot. And so the bottom line is we want to be free from pretense. We want to be free from deceit. We want to be free from hypocrisy. And in that same way, the church needs to be free from it. And that's what happened to the church of Colossae. Paul had gotten word that this church was under attack from false teachers. A dangerous heresy had made an appearance in their city. And at the time of this letter, it was being a serious threat and really challenging the well-being of this Colossian church. Their false teachers were trying to tear down the deity of Christ. They were teaching that he was not actually God. Now, the Apostle Paul wasn't just going to stand by and let this happen. The church of Colossae was actually planted by Epaphras, a disciple of Paul. And even though Paul had never been to this church... In his classic, straightforward, but loving way, he addressed these issues head-on. And he felt he had to address them head-on because the nature of Jesus Christ as creator and redeemer was non-negotiable. So Paul wrote to him to try to bring wisdom to this difficult situation. And it was critical to Paul that this church know God in his greatness And in his glory, rather than in the deficient view that was being given to him by these false teachers. So let's read together in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of the saints. Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, you have already heard about this hope in the word, the truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world 
just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. It's important for us to see that in all four of these chapters of Colossians, Paul is exalting Christ. And the exaltation of Christ is the main idea of this whole book. And the exaltation of Christ is also the main idea of this passage in chapter 1. Jesus is the focus. Now here in Colossians, Paul presented Christ as the center of the universe, not only as the active creator, but also the recipient of creation in his taking on of human flesh. Christ was and is the visible image of the invisible God, containing within himself the fullness of deity. And because of his divine nature, Jesus is sovereign. And because of his sovereignty, and because of his authority, he's also the head of the church. And here is the proper view of Christ. Jesus has reconciled all things to himself through his death on the cross, making believers alive to God and setting them on the path of right living. And what we see here in Colossians is this proper view of Christ being served as the antidote for the heresy that's being placed in the Colossian church. This proper view of Christ is also a building block for Christian life and doctrine for both then and now. It was practical for them, and it's also practical for us. We need to exalt Christ because he is the focus. And one major thing that rises to the top of this passage is that truth came to them and they believed. Truth came to them and they believed. In this text, Paul praises and glorifies God for his saving work among the Colossians. He thanks God for their faith and he thanks God for their love, which came in response of the gospel. And then he boasts in how the gospel not only came to them, but it was bearing fruit all over the world. So Paul glorified in the gospel and its work. And in that same way, we should never lose our awe of the gospel. The gospel translates people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And the gospel transforms the most hardened sinner into the most gracious saint. So we got to put before ourselves these questions this morning. Do we still glory in the gospel? Do we glory that we received it? And do we glory that others are receiving it? It's foundational and it's crucial to salvation. But as Christians, we can lose our joy for the gospel. It happened to David. He said in Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now, for Christians, the gospel can become something a believer needs to be saved and that a believer needs to share 
but not something that a believer needs to continually marvel at and to continually drink deeply from. But the exact opposite of this is what we need to strive for. Believers need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. The gospel should continually transform us and continually bring us joy. It's been said we should preach the gospel daily to ourselves because we are prone to forget, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. When Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, the church had lost their joy of the gospel. They had lost their glory of the gospel. They forgot the importance of it, not only for salvation, but for their daily lives. This cult attacked the core of the gospel. And it hit so hard in this church because they were vulnerable to the deception of this cult because they had lost that importance of the gospel. This cult was attacking Jesus Christ, saying he wasn't sufficient for salvation and that the Colossians needed more They needed more spiritual knowledge for salvation. And this heresy was sly. It was using aspects of Judaism and Greek philosophy. And the Colossians were taught they needed to achieve a higher experience and that Jesus wasn't enough. And sadly, this exact situation has happened throughout church history. When the church and individual believers have lost that awe of the gospel, it opens up the door for the enemy to attack and defame the gospel. Now, the easiest way to be robbed or to lose something is to take it for granted and to forget about it, to forget how important it is. This happens in marriages. uh, It happens in relationships. But it certainly happens to our faith. The writer of Hebrews warns us of this with the gospel. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3, he says, "How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation?" And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He was trying to restore the glory and the wonder of the gospel with these Colossian believers. Paul's teaching was helping them guard the gospel. And I'm glad it also helps us guard the gospel. The scripture before us this morning examines faith, it examines love, and it examines hope. And we need to ask ourselves, what do those mean? And uh, digging a little deeper, we need to ask, what does it look like when we apply those to living out a sincere Christianity? In answering that question, the first truth that this scripture points us to is that sincere Christianity is guided by faith. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 of Colossians 1. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And one thing that sticks out to me here is Paul's habit of prayer for the Colossians. Praying always for you. And he'd never met him. And this church was on his prayer list. And he prayed often for them 
He prayed always. And we give thanks. When Paul did pray for the Colossians, he did it full of gratitude. And he was combining prayer and thankfulness. And on this topic of combining prayer and faithfulness, Ben Nicholson calls these two things the elements of Christian power in the world. And perhaps those who pray the most end up having the most reasons to be thankful. So why was Paul thankful? And he was thankful for their salvation, but also the corresponding works of their salvation. So it's important for us to see here that the Colossians were living in faith. They were being led down a wrong path at this moment, but they did have faith in Jesus. Uh, Epaphras is the concerned pastor in this situation, and he was the one who planted the church, and he's the one who visited Paul to get counsel from him of how to address the teaching of this cult. But he also told Paul about the Colossians' genuine faith in Christ Jesus. And so this marks a really important aspect of the gospel. The gospel was received by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, every other religion teaches the necessity of works for salvation without any assurance of being truly saved. But the gospel teaches salvation given by faith, given by grace through faith. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. It says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and it is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Faith is only as good as its object. Riding in a car requires a certain amount of faith, and riding in a plane requires a certain amount of faith, both in the driver or the pilot um, and also the mode of transportation, especially depending upon who's driving. But the gospel is glorious because it includes faith in Christ. And we know he's fully trustworthy of that faith. It's important to remember that faith is way more than an intellectual belief in the facts of the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This faith is a gift from God that affects not only our minds, but the will of man. And I want us to note this morning that faith includes trust. Faith can be translated as trust. Faith in Christ means to put all of our trust in Christ alone as sufficient for salvation. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is calling all those who are weary from seeking to earn their own salvation. And he tells them that rest is only found in him and in him alone. Now, Christ did everything to pay the penalty for us. 
and to make us acceptable to God. And we must put our full trust in Christ for salvation. We can't trust Christ plus baptism, Christ plus prayer, or Christ plus joining the church or some other religious experience. We must trust Christ only. Only he saves. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I also want us to note this morning that faith includes repentance. Repentance means a change of heart that results in a change of action. And often when the gospel message appears in the scriptures, it includes repentance. And look at how Paul preached in the gospel of Acts. Uh, here's what he said to him in Acts 20, 21. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must trust in God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. In order for a person to truly put faith in Christ, they must turn away from their sin. Repentance must occur for a person to follow Christ. The third um, note I want to put before us with faith is that faith includes committing to Christ as Lord. Faith can also be translated as commit. The word in classical Greek describes those that are in a contracted relationship. We can't simply believe in Christ as our Lord, but we must accept him as Lord of our lives. And Jesus declared in Luke 14 that if anybody determined to come after him must hate mother and father, must hate wife and children, brother and sister, and even one's own life to be his disciple. That hits us hard. Our love towards these people must resemble hate compared to our love for Christ. And that right there describes lordship. Christ becomes the leader. And a person who truly believes no longer is dependent upon the will of the family or their own personal will, but it's God's will that acts as the guiding factor in their life. Those who truly accept Christ put their faith totally in Christ. They trust him being sufficient for salvation. And that means they repented. They returned from their sin and they followed Christ. This is important because false faith can flourish in the church. James identifies a demonic faith in James chapter 2 verse 19 that believes in Christ but doesn't change lives. False faith, false teaching. So what are we listening to? What are we filling our minds with? Now, ultimately, here's the question. We have to be honest with ourselves in answering it. Does our faith include fully trusting Christ, repentance of our sin, and committing to Christ as Lord? Because sincere Christianity is guided by faith. The second truth the scripture points us to 
is that sincere Christianity is expressed in love. Let's look at verse 4, chapter 1 in Colossians. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Paul was celebrating the love produced by the gospel, but also the love that was demonstrated in the lives of the Colossians. The Colossians began to love all the saints. And now this is proof of the gospel's supernatural nature. And it also serves as a test to whether we've truly experienced the gospel. Listen to what John said on the effects of salvation in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. We know we pass from death to life because we love the brothers in the church. And this love reflects our salvation. Romans 5, Romans 5, 5 tells us that when a person is truly born again, the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into their hearts. And that love allows them to love God and to love people, but especially love the people in the church. And Jesus also taught that. He said it to his disciples in John 13, verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Yes, we should be able to tell within ourselves if we've been truly saved because of the love that we feel. But those around us should be able to tell it. And this is what Paul's focused on when he talked about love, their love for all the saints. This love is in obedience to Christ's command of John 13, to love one another, even as I've loved you. And Paul gives thanks that the Colossians love the saints. That their love is non-negotiable. It's non-selective. Apparently, there were no divisive cliques at the church of Colossae like there was in the Corinthian church. And Christ's love drew the Colossians to himself, but it also drew them to each other. John MacArthur said, that does not mean we are to feel the same emotional attachment toward everyone. True biblical love is so much more than an emotion. It is a sacrificial service to others because they have a need. True biblical love is so much more than an emotion. It's because it's sacrificial service of someone's need. We show godly love to someone when we sacrifice ourselves to meet that person's needs. We see true godly love demonstrated in John 13. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Then he showed what that love meant by washing the disciples' feet later in verses 4 and 5. And this is a great example to us 
that God doesn't expect us to feel sentimental toward each other all the time. But he does expect us to serve one another. Quickly, I want to point out that this love that is expressed in sincere Christianity results in meeting with one another. Uh, It's uh, part of the reason why we're here right now this morning. It's part of the reason we're in Bible fellowship classes, in small groups, in fellowshipping with each other throughout the week. It's something we naturally want to do when you love someone. You want to be with them. You want to meet with them. And the gospel results in a supernatural love for believers that compels them to be around them. Hebrews 10, verse 25, says, Let us give up, let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and that all the more you see the day approaching. This love results in caring for one another. True love means that you listen to one another. True love means that you support one another in hard times. And true love means that you go out of your way to encourage one another. And that's a natural result of love. John, who's known as the apostle of love, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but does not pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. And this love should result in a global care for the body. This includes praying for churches that aren't your own. Praying for churches that you've never been to, just like Paul's doing. The uh, partnership that we have with the Church of Peru really stands out to me when I think of this. They pray for us continually. I see it when I'm there. I watch their services sometimes, live stream. I don't understand everything that's being said, but you can sense that. Their attitude of prayer, not just for their church, but for their partners and for the global church. They're praying for all the saints. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul said, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And so this love pushes us to support missionaries. This love pushes us to support pastors and ministers all around the world. And this love is global. And the third truth that this scripture points us to is that sincere Christianity is secured by hope. Let's look at verse 5 in chapter 1 of Colossians. Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, you have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel. Now, hope is the next component in the great triad of Christian values, next with faith and with love. Now, hope is very similar to faith. Hope 
is essentially faith in something future. And because of that, hope is very important. Hope encourages us. Hope motivates us. Hope pushes us to persevere. Now, a person that wants to be a doctor works hard at his grades because of the future hope. A person that works hard in the gym push hard because of the hope of better health or to be more fit. We're just naturally motivated by hope. And the good news is, is the gospel is full of hope. And Paul says that. He says that the faith and love spring up from hope and it's reserved in heaven. It's hope waiting in heaven motivates us to put our faith in Christ for salvation. And that's also why the enemy works so hard to destroy the believer's hope. Because a Christian with a lack of hope will have a lack of joy, will have a lack of purpose in their life. And in that same thought, Christians without hope will be prone to compromise. They will compromise in their affection to the things of the world because they can't see the beauty that's reserved in heaven. They will compromise their morals for temporary pleasure. And this is what Paul wanted to remind the Colossian church about because they did have hope and it motivated them to faith. But he wanted to strengthen them and give them courage to overcome what they were going through in the moment. And with that same hope and courage, it's many Christians who have given up their careers. They've given up wealth. They've given up their prospects. They left home. They left their family. They left their nation. And their future hope sprung into faith and love. The great missionary Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It is not foolish at all. In fact, it is wise. Let this gospel increase our hope in heavenly things so we may live wise lives instead of foolish ones. The writer of Hebrews said, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Now, this hope that we're talking about, it's our anchor. And it keeps us from being swept in the waves of this world. It makes us firm and it makes us secure because of God's promise. And it's only because of God's trustworthiness. Now, this hope stabilized the Colossians in their trials and it motivated them. Motivated them to more faith and to deeper love. And here are some exciting truths of hope. Hope is eternal. It includes eternal life. Hope includes the resurrection of the dead. And hope includes our inheritance with Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. 
And the last truth that we're going to look at this morning is that sincere Christianity bears fruit and grows all over the world. Let's look at verse 6 in chapter 1 of Colossians. The gospel that has come to you is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. The gospel is universal. And Paul said, all over the world the gospel is growing and bearing fruit. In many religions, especially in ancient times, they were localized to a certain people group. And their gods would have been the gods of the mountains, or the gods of the sea, or the gods of the trees. But Christianity was not localized. It was not for a particular reason, region or for a particular people group. And when Paul spoke to the Athenians about God, he called him the Lord of heaven and earth, which essentially means everything. He's the Lord of everything. Here's exactly what he said in Acts 17, verses 24 through 28. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and be determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And this is why the gospel goes everywhere, because it's the good news of God. And he's calling his children back to him. He's calling everyone to repent and turn to him. Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, that before his second coming, the gospel would be taught in all the nations of the earth. He said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So yeah, the gospel is universal, but the gospel is also personal. The gospel is for all nations. And it came to the Colossians, and it also came to us. And that's what Paul's saying here in verse 6. You have already heard about the truth in the word, the gospel that has come to you. And that's why Paul was so excited. That's why he was thanking God, because the gospel had come to the Colossians, and they had believed. They had accepted it. I love the way John MacArthur describes this. He says, The gospel produces fruit both in the internal transformation of individuals and also in the external growth of the church. The two concepts are interrelated. The spiritual growth of individuals will lead to new converts being one to Christ. Christians are responsible for sharing the gospel. We're responsible for sharing the gospel. In 7 and 8, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and who has told us of your love and your spirit. 
Paul's reminding the Colossians of how they heard the gospel. And in the same way, God has committed his gospel into the hands of sinful but redeemed people. Yeah, salvation is solely based by God's grace. But he uses humans to channel that grace. God gives us the wonderful privilege, but also a sobering responsibility of being his agents in proclaiming his gospel of grace. May we be faithful to share with others the gospel that's meant so much to us. Let's bow our hearts together. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time together in your word. Our prayer is that for those of us who know you, may we live out a sincere relationship with you. A relationship that leads others to see you through us. Lord, our hope is in you and in you alone. God, if we've lost our motivation, if we've lost our strength and encouragement, if we're lacking in faith, if we're lacking in love, I pray that you set our hope not on the passing pleasures of this world, but God set our hope on your heavenly promises. Lord, if there are those hearing this prayer that have not come to you in saving faith, I pray that they do it right now in this moment. Dear God, I pray that they open up their hearts and their lives to you and declare that you are the Lord of their life and that they believe in you and that they love you, that they place their hope in you. Lord, continue to use us as your church to reach the people down the street and around the world so that they're changed forever by your grace and your mercy. Be with us now in this time of response. Help us to make forward steps in our relationship with you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.